Well, amen. Good evening, church family. It is good to be worshiping with you today. Why don't you grab your Bibles and let's go back to the book of Habakkuk. Are you just loving being in the Old Testament? It's kind of fun, right? And uh, th- this, this is probably one of those books that you hadn't spent a whole lot of time in before, but maybe, hopefully, you're kind of realizing you, you, you can relate. You can, uh, you're kind of understanding Habakkuk and his plight and uh, the struggles that he's going through. So we are actually going to be in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to finish Habakkuk 2 uh, tonight, and then next week we'll actually finish the entire book. Uh, but just to bring us back up to speed to kind of recap, uh, Habakkuk Habakkuk starts by, by looking around at all of the evil and the injustice and, 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 and all these problems in the world. His world is so messed up, and, and, and he's crying out to God, like, God, why aren't you doing anything about it? It doesn't seem like you're listening to me when I'm crying out or, or doing anything about all of this evil and, and, and injustice and wickedness uh, that, that's all around me in my community. And God kind of says, well, wait a minute, time out. I, I am doing something. I am getting ready to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. I'm going to raise up Babylon, and they're going to come and bring judgment on my people, Judah, because of their rebellion, because of their wickedness and sin. And Habakkuk's like, well, wait, what? Like, that that can't be right. Like, that can't be the plan. Like, they're worse than we are. Like, how could you use an evil nation like that? That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. You know what? I'm just gonna, I'm gonna climb up to my tower, my watchtower, and I'm just gonna wait for you to respond to this. And so God comes and he says, all right, check it. Write it down. Like, you're going to want to know this. You're going to want to be able to share this with others. I want everybody, uh, uh, I want my people to hear these words. My plan is going to happen. If it, if it seems slow, wait for it. It's coming. And then we get uh, verse 4 in chapter 2. And if you don't already, uh, you want to make sure that you have this highlighted. This is the heart of the book of Habakkuk, I think it's actually both instructive and encouraging because it highlights the contrast between the, the arrogant, those that he says are, are, are puffed up and not upright, and uh, versus the righteous. And the righteous shall live by his faith. And part of the point of what he's trying to say is, be like the righteous and live by faith. Trust the Lord. And now what we're going to look at um, today the rest of what God's going to share with him, he's going to show why it's so much better to trust the Lord. And he's going to demonstrate that and prove that by telling him what's going to happen to those arrogant, wicked, evil, uh, this nation that doesn't trust in him. And the point, one of the things is why we um, entitled this sermon, this is, you don't want to be on that team. You really don't want to be on that team. Uh, look what he says in verse 5. Let's, let's, let's read this, and, and, and we're really going to pick up in, in verse 6, but I, I want to get a little bit of a running start. Verse 5, he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed, and he's talking about Babylon now, okay, this is the enemy. His greed is as wide as shield, like death 
He has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Like, I know Babylon is arrogant. I know they're greedy. I know they're dangerous. But, look at it, verse 6, but shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles? So what we're about to read, the rest of chapter 2 is a taunt against Babylon, their enemy. It's a taunt. that The word there kind of means like a song of jest or mocking someone. Like, like they're, they're, they're right now, I know that, that, that Babylon's a, a threat. They're a world threat. They're this bully. Uh, uh, but eventually, he's saying, they're going to be the joke. They're going to be the punchline. Like everybody's going to make fun of them. Like the Babylon memes are going to be better than Bernie. Like we're going to be laughing at these guys. Just wait. They've got it coming. In fact, I, I was thinking about the emotion in this before we read it. Um, we, we are supposed to feel something um, when, when we think about Babylon and what they have coming to them because of how wicked and arrogant and rebellious they are uh, against God. And it, and it kind of reminded me, bear with me, it reminded me of how I felt about LeBron James in 2010 and the decision. You remember the decision? Okay, so here's, those of you who don't remember this, and, and by the way, like I know I'm a little biased in this, and, and me and LeBron, he came back to Cleveland and won us a championship, so he and I, we're, we're good now. But um, like that, back in the day, I really struggled with this one uh, because he became a free agent. He'd been playing uh, for Cleveland Cavaliers and, and was really, really good, and, uh, but, but, but he had the freedom to either stay in Cleveland or go wherever he wanted to go. Well, he waited and waited and waited, and eventually he decided that he was going to go on national television and they created this one-hour TV special called The Decision so that he could make his decision, which in hindsight was not a great decision uh, to do that. Uh, But he goes on national television, and that's where um, he said, I'm going to take my talents to South Beach and essentially just trashed and embarrassed the entire city of Cleveland on national television, which I get, like, if you want to go to Miami and he, he wanted to go play with the Miami, that's fine. But, but the problem was he was teaming up with one of his buddies, Dwayne Wade, who was also one of the best in the NBA at the time. And then they brought in Chris Bosh. So they were forming this big three, which is an immediate threat to everybody. Like, they're clearly the favorites to win it all now. In fact, they started throwing this party down in Miami. I don't know if you remember this. They had this big old celebration, and, and, and all of them are in their jerseys. Right? Haven't even played again. Haven't won anything. But they're celebrating like crazy, and the reporters are asking LeBron, like, you, yeah, I know you came here to win some championships. How many championships do you think uh, you guys are going to win? Direct quote here. Not one, not two, not three, not four, not five, not six, not seven. Like he seriously said that. Like just rubbing it in the face of everybody in the NBA. He's like enemy number one here. Okay, And, and everybody's like, how, how is any, anybody going to compete with these guys? So with, with, with that in mind, you can imagine how people felt and how people responded that year in the 2011 NBA Finals when this juggernaut, uh, powerhouse Miami uh, Heat team uh, imploded on national television and lost 
the NBA Finals. And there was much rejoicing. It was glorious. Like, like I, I got to be honest with you, there was a part of me, I know it's sick, it's a little uh, twisted, but I was like, yes, like, love to see it. But they had it coming, right? You kind of saw this thing coming. It reminded me of Proverbs sixteen eighteen, which says this, pride goes before a fall. And we've seen this played out like a million movies, like the, the, the Monstars in Space Jam, or, or the cocky Little League team on Sandlot, or, or, or Johnny and the Cobra Kai on Karate Kid, or, or for those of you who don't like uh, sports movies, like that's fine, I get it, I understand, but like maybe uh, Slytherin, or Darth Vader, or, or Thanos, or something like that. Like you just, you, you see it coming. Babylon is kind of like that. They are this unstoppable superpower that's a threat to everybody. And, and everybody knows they're, they're these evil bad guys and they're going to win. It just seems completely inevitable. But basically, the message of Habakkuk 2 is this. They're going down. They're going down. In fact, if you want to write uh, note this, this is is the big idea. This is what I'd love for you to take away in light of what we're about to read, okay? Note this. Learn your lesson now from God's coming judgment on all the proud and unrighteous. Why don't we learn our lesson now in light of what they got coming? Okay, so let's read this together. If you're there, Habakkuk chapter 2, I'm starting in verse 6. We're going to read through the rest of the chapter. This is the message that God wanted to uh, bring to his people. He says this, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And he loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Man, that's an awesome image, isn't it? Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You you pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a, a teacher of lies. For, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! 
to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let me give you two reasons why you don't want to be on that team. Okay, here's the first. You have the assurance of God's victory. It's part of the reason you don't want to be on that team. It's because you, as the people of God, have the assurance of God's victory. Yes, what's crazy about this is that, that God is going to allow these, uh, this, this enemy to bring judgment on his people, but, but, but things are not really going to go well for them in the end. Okay, and, and then he organizes this text, what we've just read, around these five woes. Did you notice that? Now, now you've got to understand, the, the biblical woe is very distinct from our English word Whoa, we don't use, like when we say, well, it's like when my, um, my wife's looking all cute on a hot date and I'm like, whoa, or, or like when our four-year-old is about to make himself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and he pulls out the knife, we're like, whoa, 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 or, or when you see somebody uh, who cuts in front of you and steals your parking spot, you're like, whoa, like that's, that's our woe, but the biblical woe, here's what it means, it means, oh boy, you're in trouble. It's a pronouncement of judgment. And God has is, God is raised up Babylon, but he's going to use them for his purpose. But here's why. Like, we've been wrestling. Uh, Habakkuk's been wrestling with the justice of how is this fair? How is this right? And, and, and right now, God's going to kind of answer that because they are still going to be held accountable for their evil, for their injustice, and the means by which they had been bullying and, and leveling all of these other nations. And so we have five woes that he pronounces on Babylon. You see the first one in verse 6. Uh, the, the, the reason uh, that he was bringing judgment was because part of it, they had, they had stolen what wasn't theirs. They're heaping up all this stuff that wasn't theirs. They're, they're like plundering this from somebody else. But verse 8, it actually says, uh, that you have plundered many nations, so now all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. Like, how do you like it? Then you see the second woe uh, there in verse 9. They they had exploited others for their own comfort, their own security. And they were were trusting in their wealth and their stuff to to protect them. They're like putting their nest on high. Like nobody's going to be able to touch us. But but, but it's all coming back on them and, and it can't give them security. The third woe there is verse 12. Because they've been guilty of all this horrific violence, but their, their, their tyrannical rule, all this, all this bloodshed, is just going to end in their own destruction. The, the fourth woe is in verse 15, where they had, they had disgraced and, and tried to, to embarrass their enemies. But, but now, verse 16, you, he says, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Like, you're the ones that are going to be embarrassed and, and ashamed and destroyed. And then the last woe is in verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19 there. They, they're, they're bowing down to uh, these idols as if these, these pieces of metal or wood or stone could hear them or talk to them. Like, you're, you're going to feel really stupid when you realize you got nothing. They're, they're, these, they're not even real. And all of this, all of this that they've been pouring out on the nations, it's all going to come back on their own heads in judgment. Here's a massive message for us in this. Evil does not win. Evil 
does not win. God is going to demonstrate his sovereign power over everything and that his plan cannot be stopped. And he's even using evil for his good purposes and he will get the glory. And I love that picture that you see in verse 14. Verse 14 is this awesome, it's like shining light in the midst of all of this darkness that that the earth, he says, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a vision that is, right? Everybody in the world is going to know that God is glorious and that His power and His magnificence will be undeniable. Babylon had, had been living in, in, in drunken arrogance and injustice and hatred and, and, and rebellion against their Creator God. Don't forget that God made them too and they're rejecting Him. But the point is, as we read this, like you don't want to be on that team. Because their judgment, their destruction is coming. And in the end, God wins. But I want you to notice something. Note who's speaking these words. Notice notice who's talking. This is is God talking. But remember verse 2. All the way back uh, at the beginning of chapter 2, in verse 2, he had told Habakkuk, he said this, write the vision, write it down on tablets, So he may run who reads it. So God intended Habakkuk to share this message with his people. So so even though God is warning Judah, that's part of what he's doing. He's like, I'm going to bring Babylon. It's not going to be good for you. Even though he's going to use Babylon and warn his people, Judah, of their impending judgment, he's also telling the survivors what they will eventually get to say to Babylon once their enemies get what's coming to them too. And so one commentator, uh, James Bruckner, said that that these words, this this taunt was like a gift. It's a gift from God to his people. Like, I'm giving you these words so, so that you can hear them now. And so that you know that you're going to speak them to your enemies one day. It's just this assurance that in the, like, I know things are hard. I know it's going to get scary. I know this is crazy. I know you may not like this. But God is just, and he does what is right every single time. And evil will not win. Evil will not win. Is that encouraging to you tonight? Like, in, in, in light of all the things that we've seen going on in our world, like, how much do we need to hear a message like that? Like, hey, guys, God knows what he's doing. And he does what is right. And evil will not win. It, it's been hard for us to, to watch hatred and, and um, injustice in our nation and, and racial tension and political division and, and violence and all of this. And I know that some of you feel discouraged and maybe some of you um, are even feeling just a little bit scared uh, about the future when you're, when you're thinking about all these, these ideologies that are attacking uh, the values of God's kingdom and it seems to be gaining steam. And so as you look into the future, you're, you're seeing like more and more sin and, and, and immorality that's not only tolerated, it's becoming prominent, it's, becoming, it's even celebrated and you're kind of realizing that if we're going to be faithful followers and disciples of Jesus in our culture, that's just going to continue to get more and more and more challenging. 
And it's easy for us to like kind of almost fear that. But don't despair. Don't give up hope. Because you have the assurance of God's victory. Evil does not win in the end. God does. I think it's also important for us just to note here that that our our greatest enemy is not a um, political rival or agenda or an international threat. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. Our greatest enemy is sin and death, which is why we're so thankful for God's justice and for His sovereign power that is even able to use evil for His good purposes and that God took the evil and the injustice of the cross and He flipped it on its head for our victory. That we deserve death because we're sinners. But Jesus conquered that enemy through his own death and his own resurrection and now we can be assured of his forgiveness and salvation even though we've done nothing to deserve it. But we look forward now because of what he's accomplished. We can look ahead, looking into the future with great hope. And we don't have to be freaking out. We don't have to be worrying. We don't have to give in to fear. We have hope in the midst of this that God does what is right. And that he will win in the end. It also reminds me, I think it's important that we kind of um, encourage one another with this, that, that we can't be afraid to, um, to warn people about this. Right? We, we can't be afraid to share the reality that apart from Christ, you don't have that hope. That, that be assured, like, God is going to get the victory. But if you don't put your trust in Christ, that's not going to be your victory. That will be for your judgment. And Tony Evans has said it this way, the reminder that the king is coming and he's not a baby in a manger anymore. And do we care enough about the people that are around us, the people in our homes, the people in our the people in our office, the people that we're interacting with. Well, like, of course, we need to be wise and loving about this. But we also need to be courageous to tell them the truth and, and call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Because you don't want to be on that team. That leads me to do the second reason that you don't want to be on that team. Note this. You have to learn to humbly trust him. You have to learn to humbly trust him. I think this is actually the lesson uh, that we need to take away from the foolish pride of Babylon. I told you, I get it. Like there's, there's, a, there's a little, let's just be honest, there's a little sense of satisfaction about this judgment, right? When we read this, and, and part of it is because we know this is just. This is right. They're, they're not going to get away with all of their violence and their injustice. Like They're going to get what's coming to them. But, but, uh, 
the, the word taunting, the, the idea of kind of like mocking them or gloating over their downfall, that, that is like kind of, it doesn't feel exactly right, does it? You, you, you almost, 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 almost feel bad for them a little bit. I, I feel like my children have the, uh, the full range of emotions on this one. I've shared with you that um, Javen is convinced that anybody who's not uh, the Ohio State Buckeyes are the bad guys, right? And so he's got that like, yes, like just beat the bad guys. Like that, that's, that's Javen. On the, on the far other extreme is, is my sweetie, Jolie, who just feels bad for her. She doesn't want anybody to lose, right? I think all of those emotions actually help us as we're responding to what we're reading in chapter 2. Because the taunts or, or the woes here, James Bruckner actually it tells us they're, they're also a lament. He said it this way, A woe in the prophetic writings is not a curse. It's like saying, alas, or how terrible for them. It is an ironic lament for the death of the wicked. He says it's, it's ironic since the captive survivors do not usually lament for their persecutors. Right? Don't normally feel bad for them. But in a sense, in, in one sense, as we look at this, we read what's going to happen, we should feel bad for the wicked in judgment. But, but it's not a sense of, of pity as if they're like the, these innocent victims that didn't really deserve that. They, they clearly deserve this. But this should be a sobering warning for us. In fact, the word taunt in Hebrew is usually translated proverb. So, so what we're reading in Habakkuk 2 is wisdom literature. It, it's meant to be a lesson for us. Learn your lesson now from God's judgment on all the proud and unrighteous. You don't want to be on that team. Look, look, look what's going to happen to them in the end. And, and you've got these five woes, which, which in some ways uh, act as warnings for us. Like if you're living like this, you're going down. You're going to face God's judgment. You're full of like greed and, and you're always just wanting more and, and, and you're willing to be deceptive and to steal and just take more for yourself or you're willing to take advantage of other people and, and exploit others for your own gain or, or you're trusting in your own bank account or your portfolio or all your possessions, all your stuff for more security and, and, and safety or significance or you're, you, you've got violence and, and hatred towards other people and in your heart towards them and, and you're wanting to tear them down. You want to see and, and make people hurt. Or, or if you're worshiping idols, maybe it's idols of comfort, idols of uh, affirmation, success, security, lusts, desire, basically putting anything before God. What, what, what he's trying to remind us is all of this ends in destruction. Don't be like these guys who are so puffed up and full of themselves that they, that, that they rely on themselves, that they reject God. But, but he brings it back to the, the contrast and the application that we saw in verse 4. We're called to something different. We are called to live by faith. That, that we put our trust in the living God who is holy and who is sovereign. 
You see, putting uh, other things in the place of God and, and worshiping idols and trusting in anything else, it's kind of exposed here in all of its stupidity at the end of this, uh, at the end of this chapter, verses 18 through 20. Uh, he says, woe to him, verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake! Or to a silent stone, arise! Like, can, can, can you just picture this? Like somebody's walking by a block of wood or a rock and talking to it as if it's going to start like just responding and, and moving around like a person. Like, this is kind of embarrassing. You look like an idiot. And, and I realize that in the 21st century in the Western world, like, the idea of, of physical uh, idols and, and bowing down, that, that seems so foreign and so weird. Like, I have never been walking by a statue like Hobby Lobby or something like that and, like, had this urge to, like, bow down on the ground and start chanting to that. I don't think that's probably happened to a lot of us this week. But that doesn't mean that idolatry doesn't exist in our culture, does it? You see, when we uh, put anything, when, when anything of which we would say, I have to have this, I need this, this will make me happy. If I could just have this, then I'd be okay, th- th- then I'd feel secure. That's, that's the indication of an idol. Maybe it's your phone. Nobody wants me to go there. It's like the first thing that we grab in the morning, right? Like, how do you respond when you can't find it or, or, or your screen is cracked? Or maybe it's a relationship. How do, you, how do you react when you don't have the relationship you want? Or, or when you lose uh, that relationship? Or when the relationship that you have uh, doesn't live up to expectations? Maybe it's success. Maybe it's affirmation. Like, the, does, the, does the dream of uh, proving yourself or, or, or being accepted and admired, does that, does that drive you? Are you constantly just driven crazy and, 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 and comparing yourself and afraid and maybe constantly thinking about what other people might be thinking about you? Or, or is it uh, comfort, food, sex, fun, desires? Like there's, there's so many idols, so many things that we're tempted to put before God. Here's what he says, verse 18. What profit is an idol? This doesn't do you any good. In fact, he says it's a, it's a teacher of lies. It will deceive you. It will leave you empty. It is completely powerless. Verse 19, it has no breath in it at all. But, verse 20, there's the contrast. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That is God's final word in this book. The last thing he wants to say is this. He reigns. Be silent. I think encountering God like this, you, you start to realize who he is. It puts us in our place, doesn't it? See, Babylon's biggest problem is that they were so like, like full of themselves and so convinced of their own greatness, they thought they were better than God, and they, uh, they, they defied God. Not a great life choice there. But God is not some dumb, mute statue. He is the living God. Who, who rules in sovereign, omnipotent power, and he judges the world in his holiness and righteous anger against sin, which in some ways ought to put the fear of God in us, literally. Or we just say, man, like, I'm realizing how much I need God's mercy. I'm completely at his mercy. Because here's the reality. Let's not forget this. We are susceptible to becoming just like Babylon 
and experiencing their fate. In fact, we are Babylon. We belong to Babylon without Christ. Because we were born sinners, born into this rebellion against God. But this is where the glorious news of the gospel just excites us that Jesus died for us even while we were still sinners, his word says. He came and he died and God's wrath for us was poured out on his son so that we could be made righteous and transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That we could be adopted into his family so now we don't belong to Babylon anymore. And we don't have to suffer their fate anymore. And that, isn't that humbling when you realize who God is and His holiness and what He's done for us and now how He deserves all of our worship, all of our adoration, and our silence before Him is reverence and awe. That, 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 that phrase in the Hebrew, the command, keep silence, it actually just means hush. Hush. And it's, it's meant for Habakkuk and, and anyone else who questions God too. Because sometimes we just need to know when to put a hand over our mouth and submit to Him. And be silent and humbly trust Him. Another commentator noted this, that, that Habakkuk actually started this, he started this whole book, and, and remember, he's complaining all about this evil and this injustice in the world, and, and what really bothered him was that it seemed like God was silent when he was crying out for help. But now, God has silenced Habakkuk by reminding him of his awesome presence and assuring him he's still in control, and he will have the final say. God always does what is right, and he will not let evil win. And those who rebel against him, God's word tells us, will be destroyed in the end. Man, you don't want to be on that team. We want to learn to trust in the Lord. Live. Live by faith in him. Because if we don't trust in Christ and what he did for us, we won't live. We, we can't save ourselves. We're completely at his mercy. But he died to save us so that we could live with him. Do you believe? I think it'd be appropriate for us to just end by doing what the scripture says. God just told us, he reigns. Keep silence. Why don't you right where you're at, let's just be silent before God. Can we do that? Let's just spend a minute and just be quiet before the Lord. Just acknowledging that He is God. I am not. That, that He is holy. That might mean in your silence having to confess sin. It, it might mean uh, putting your trust in Him. It also might mean praising Him. Praising Him that He is going to set all things right and that because of Jesus, you can live with Him forever in glory. Let's be silent before the Lord.